You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Good morning. Well, who would have ever thunk it? There's some good English for you this morning. Uh, who would have ever thought that here in Lumberton we would miss two Sundays in a row because of snow and ice? I, my time in, in Wilkes County as associate pastor, I can't think of up in that close to the mountains of a time where I think we canceled two Sundays in a row. But when I got here last Sunday, I, I know the roads weren't all that bad, but when I got here, the, the sidewalk from this end of the building all the way to the other was a solid sheet of ice. And so we always want to try to make decisions that err uh, on the side of caution. And uh, we uh, are very thankful for you tuning in last week and for all those that are tuning in this morning. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 17. Now in advance of this message this morning, I want to, I want to tell you that we are going to get to some incredible hope in this, uh, in this prophet. It takes a little time, but we're going to get there. And I think sometimes when we see the hard part of what God is saying through the prophet of Jeremiah, it makes the hope even better. But in, John, in Jeremiah 17, I think what God is saying to the prophet is that I want to go to the core issue here. I want, I want to go down to the very deep issue of what's going on with his southern kingdom. So let's pick it up, Jeremiah chapter 17, let's pick it up in verse one. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their asherim, beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains and the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price for your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an inhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Father, we pause this morning. We say thank you for your goodness and your grace. For Lord, your mercy and your grace has worked out in our lives this past week in a million ways. Most of the time, we don't even recognize. Father, you've given us a warm home with heat inside that house when it's cold outside. You have blessed us with heat and a home that's safe, when we recognize that most of the world does not have that comfort. We have food in our cupboards and fresh water that comes out of our faucet. We have a car that we can drive and, uh, and a job to go to and, and income, family and friends and encouragement. Lord, far too many times in my own life when I come to you in prayer, Far too often I just come with a list of things that I need you to do. And Lord, I'm thankful that you invite us into that kind of relationship. You invite us to walk with you in that way that, that we can make the very desires of our heart known to you that you already know about. But Father, I think that we need to become proficient and better at just saying thank you. That we're grateful for your goodness and your grace. That, that Father, we didn't get what we deserved that your son dying on a cross, taking our wrath upon himself, and by us placing our faith in him, we didn't get what we deserved. Jesus took what we deserved, and you gave us freedom and life and peace and joy and a message to share with those who haven't found it yet. So Father, we want to say thank you. We, 
want you to know, Father, how grateful we are for your goodness and your love. You're a good father. And you've given us far more than we've ever deserved. So we bless your name this morning with every word, with every song, with every handshake, with every smile. We bless your name. And our desire this morning is to glorify you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In 1993, in Seattle, a new TV show came on that, quite frankly, they weren't too sure was going to be accepted, but from 1993 to 1998, this particular TV show just exploded in popularity. The main character on the show, on the show and this show was about science, it was a TV show that was kind of geared towards science for kids. And it had all of the funny stuff going on, and, and the main guy that was in the show had kind of a quirky personality. His name was William Sanford Nye. You might know him as Bill Nye, the science guy. And a lot of kids grew up watching Bill Nye, the science guy. And in 1996, I think this was in their fourth season, they had an episode that was talking about DNA and chromosomes. And I went back and watched it. It is actually very well done. Matter of fact, all those science shows that I can remember, I didn't watch many of them. And this was before we had kids. Um, so I didn't watch a lot of Bill Nye, the science guy, but I've heard about him for years. And the episode that I watched was actually a very well done episode. It was funny. It was quirky. had some interesting, you know, experiments that happened. Well, in that particular episode, there was this one portion of it where there's a, a, like a, a, a woman, like a young girl, maybe a college-age girl who's kind of like his co-host or something. She begins to talk about chromosomes, and she begins to talk about how the DNA and chromosomes determine the type of person you are, and specifically, she's talking about gender. And, and she explains it really well. She's got magnets on a refrigerator showing how this works, and she had a, she had a, a, a magnet there that was a man and a magnet there that was a woman, and, and underneath the, the woman, she had two X's, and underneath the man, she had an X and a Y. And she said that, you know, your mother gave you an X chromosome. And then your father, at conception, gave you either an X or a Y. Now, if your father provided an X chromosome along with your mother's X chromosome, guess what that is? That's a baby girl. If your father gave a Y chromosome along with your mother's X chromosome, guess what that is? A baby boy. And in that discussion, and this is in 1996, in that discussion, she looks at the screen and she says this. She says, there is only two possibilities. XX is girl, XY is boy, and every child is one of two possibilities. She said that and repeated it. Now let's fast forward to 2017. Bill Nye, the science guy, is asked to do a, a series on Netflix. And in that series, and I would not, absolutely not encourage you to go watch this particular episode because it is absolutely, well, it's just ungodly. But in this episode, there is a, some famous singer, I don't know who she is, and sings this rap song about how that gender is fluid. That it's not either male or female, that it can be whatever you choose it to be. Now, we have to beg the question here, and of course, Bill Nye the Science Guy is affirming that and actually says that in the episode in 2017. Now, we have to ask the question, what changed between 1996 and 2017? Well, I can guarantee you what changed was not the science. Because every little boy and every little girl that's born is born as a little boy or a little girl because of an XX chromosome or an XY chromosome, period. So what changed? Well, it wasn't the science. The University of Pennsylvania, there's an individual there by the name of Leah Thomas, a biological male who now identifies as female. On the swim team, and the University of Pennsylvania is known for a pretty strong women's swim team, and this biological male is now on the women's swim team and, and he is breaking every record that many women have worked very hard for very many years to set those world records and he's breaking them like nobody's business. Now, now here's the discussion that's been going on for the last several weeks. We are confronted on live TV with the reality, now get this, the reality that there is a difference between male and female, physiologically, muscle strength, lung capacity, so you have the NCAA arguing about 
this difference that is obvious and they're trying to figure out how to be politically woke but at the same time be fair and let me tell you there is no way that's going to be able to work out and if this keeps going the way it's going women's sports will be no more and I hate that because women have worked hard for many years to have leagues of, of professional sports where they are competing and doing incredible feats and because of What's going on now with, with gender identity? It's being wiped out in a minute, matter of moments. Just this week, it was announced that there's going to be a new emoji. I don't use emojis very much because I'm a terrible texter. I'm, I'm, just, I'm fortunate if I can get my message across. And emojis, I, I'm afraid I'm going to really mess something up. So I don't use them very often. But you'll be glad to know that just this week, there was an announcement you have a new emoji. If you've updated your phone, you already have it. In your emoji list now, you now have the opportunity to choose a pregnant man. And it's, it's a picture of a man standing to the side, obviously pregnant with a beard and mustache. And we have to ask a question, what in the world is going on? All of y'all have been struggling with this. If you've got kids in your house, you're definitely struggling with this because you're trying to navigate what is true, what is reality versus what the culture is saying. And, and the power of the culture to want you to fit in. Look, we all know what that's like. You remember what it was like to be in middle school, right? To want to fit in? Well, now that's taken to the 15,000th degree now. And to fit in with where our culture's going, I must deny the reality of how God has created the world, his world order, how he's created it. And if I hear this one more time, I think my head's going to explode. So if you hear the ambulance coming over to Simmons Drive, it's because my head has exploded. If I hear this one more time, my head will literally explode. That is, I have to get on the right side of history. Well, listen, if destroying the order that God has created is the right side of history, no thank you, I'll stay right where I am. What's going on? Can we peel the onion back and get down to what the core issue is? Yes, we can, because right here in Jeremiah 17, what God is saying is the core of the onion, is the core issue. Now, lest you think that this text is relegated to the past thousands of years ago and has nothing to do with us, please consider that what's going on in the world today is no different than what's been going on in the world ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden. Nothing has changed. Now, the devices, the technology has allowed us to engage in evil activity quicker, easier, faster, but nothing has really changed. The attack on God's created order is as consistent today as it's ever been. And we understand that the Bible teaches us in the New Testament that as we get closer to Jesus' return, things are going to get worse. We understand that. But what is the core issue? When we, we've been walking through the book of Jeremiah, and we've seen that Judah, the southern kingdom, is described by God as an adulterous wife. So they're in this covenant relationship where God loves his bride. And God has provided everything that the bride needs. He's provided a land that flows with milk and honey. The Bible describes this land as flowing with milk and honey. In other words, provision. You could grow crops there. Anything you needed, it was basically at your disposal. He has provided a city for them. And inside that city that's walled off with 12 gates, he's provided a temple. And in that temple, the very presence of God would come down and commune with his people. God has given them victory. He's given them wealth. He's given them power. He's made them a nation. You see, God's kept all his promises. And this bride had everything that she needed, but yet this bride has gone looking, well, for other lovers. The thing about this bride, though, that you have to keep in mind that we've talked about is that not only has this bride went looking for other, other people to involve herself with, at the same time, she's coming back home and saying, hi, honey, I'm home. Let me illustrate that, or let me tell you what that looks like. They were going to the temple. They were offering sacrifices. They were going through the rituals of worship when they weren't worshiping God at all. And the fact is, their heart was turned towards false gods, no gods at all. And at the same time, they were acting as though everything was okay with the God who had called them out of darkness into light. Isn't that incredible? I think it's shocking. They were trying to live this dual life. They had broken the covenant. And God said to them on that conditional covenant that was given to them through Moses, that says, look, here's my law. This is what I'm asking you to do as my people. This is how you're going to live. 
You're not going to have any more gods before me. You're not going to have any graven images. You're going to honor your parents. You're not going to lie. You're not going to, you're going to, you're not going to treat people poorly. You're going to take care of the poor. You're going to take care of the widows and the orphans. And by doing that, you're going to separate yourself unto me. But what happened was, as they turned their heart away from God, they began to treat each other with contempt. Their widows were not being taken care of. The orphans were being left in the street. They were living just like any other nation on earth, even though God had called them out to be different. So we have to ask the question just as we ask at the very beginning, what is the core problem here? Is, peel back the onion. What is, the, serious, what is the, the underlying issue that's driving all of this? In other words, what is the fountainhead? If I go to my, my great-grandfather's property where we have a cabin and there's all kinds of springs and creeks running there. And if I walk far enough up those little branches and up those little creeks, you know what I find? I find the source. I find that this, this one little place where there's water coming out from under this hillside and it eventually gets bigger and bigger and bigger and turns into a pretty good sized stream. So what do we need to do this morning? We need to go to the fountainhead. We need to go to where all of this lies. What is the core issue? And that's exactly what God tells Jeremiah. So let's pick it up in verse one. In verse one, he says, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. We are told consistently um, throughout much of our life, you've heard this, I've heard it, that humanity is born essentially good. We are good people. And that as we grow up, we live in culture. Eventually, the culture influences us and we become bad people or, or evil people or wrong people. So evil doesn't exist inside of us. Evil is out here somewhere. We're born as good people. And if we could just tap into that goodness, the inside of you is something good and inside of you is something moral and some, inside of you is something that should be, well, embraced and, and that you, at the core of who you are, you're a good person. And that really what we need to do is we need to tap into that inner goodness. Well, the fact is, is that goes completely contradictory to what God's word says. He says that written on our heart is disobedience and rebellion. I've said this before, it's worth saying again. You want to see that lived out, just volunteer a week or two in our preschool. You'll see it, right, Caitlin? You'll see it. It doesn't take long, and it starts pretty young, too. The fighting over a cookie or a toy. It's mine. Where does that come from? It's such a young, young age. Where's it going from? Well, the Bible tells us it's written on the heart. Paul says that in Romans 3. He says that the, the heart is wicked, it's evil, that on our mouth is, is all kinds of foul language in our thoughts, or all kinds of foul thoughts, that if we, could, if we could play out on a video the things that we think about every day, yeah, we wouldn't be too proud of that, would we? No. What's going on there? There's a, there's a heart problem. He says not only that, he says, but it's written on the horns of their altars. What is he talking about? Well, God is saying that these altars that they've built to these false gods where they're offering sacrifices, and I'll remind you that Manasseh, an evil king of the southern kingdom, he introduced child sacrifice into the southern kingdom, so they are actually sacrificing children to false gods in the promised land. And God says, not only is it written on your heart, but it's written out in the world where everybody can see it. Right there on the altars to the false gods, it is clear what your intentions are. It is clear where your heart is. It is clear what you think about me. It is clear what you actually believe. Regardless of what you do in the temple, regardless of the sacrifice you just offered up there, it's the altars in your city, the altars in your house. That tells the story, and the story is something is wrong with your heart. He says, look at verse, verse three. He says, on the mountains in the open country, your wealth and all your treasures, I will give spoil as a price for your high price. Back up into verse two. I don't want to miss this part. Verse two. He says, while their children remember their altars and their ashram beside every green tree and on all the high hills. So this morning over in the other building, we have kids live, children's worship. And they're over there and they've got some songs they'll do. They've got some, some, they'll get into God's word just like we're doing this morning. Well, imagine this. In the southern kingdom, they were having children's church. But it wasn't children's church honoring Jehovah God. It was children's church that was honoring Baal. 
God told the nation of Israel all the way back in Deuteronomy 6, he said to them, you will teach your children about me. You will tell them about all that I've done. You will tell them how I made you a nation. You will tell them how you were in bondage. I set you free, and now you're in a covenant relationship. You'll tell your children that. But all these many years later, what do we find? We find the children worshiping at the altar of a false god. You see, there's something wrong with the heart, not only in just the adults, but also in the kids. Something's wrong here. He says, when I look across the high hills, when I look across the promised land, here's what I see. I see altars on every hill and on every mountain. Where you live, where you do business, in your community, I see altars on the green hills and under the trees. The very land that I gave you, the very land that bears my name and I gave to you, you've now corrupted with false gods. Something you've got to catch here. You see that word Asherim? That's referring to a female Canaanite goddess. And you, know what, you want to know what that female goddess is all about? She's all about wealth and fortune and happiness. Could it be that the southern kingdom wanted to be happy, wanted to be, well, have all of their cake and eat it too. And, and what, would you imagine that they would go find a God that would affirm the way they wanted to live? Yes, that's exactly what happened. Because here's something you gotta get. You gotta get this. All idolatry. And remember, we defined that a few weeks ago. It's not some statue in your house that you're burning incense to. It could be. Anything that comes between you and God, anything that gets your attention, anything that gets your focus, anything that takes your stewardship, your money, your time, anything that gets between you and God can become an idol. And you gotta understand what the core of idolatry is. The core of it is you. You see, the whole point of worshiping an idol, they, these people know that the stump or a tree or a statue, they, they know what it really is. The reason they've got that God is because they want a God they control. They want a God they can put in a box and pull out to get their religion on and then put back in a box and live however they want to live. And even better, if you can find a God that affirms what your flesh desires. If you can find a God, if you can find a religion that says, oh, just be healthy, just be wealthy, just be prosperous, and, and if you'll pray to me and you'll sacrifice me, then I'll give you everything you want. You see, the core of idolatry is not the worship of a God. The core of idolatry is the worship of yourself. And no matter where you look at idolatry, that's exactly what you find. I want it my way, just like McDonald's. Is that McDonald's or Burger King? Whatever it is, it's religion your way is what it is. It fulfills that, that place in your heart where you're desiring to know your creator, so we shove something in there that doesn't really fit, called a false god, and we run after it, we give to it, and we pursue it because we control it rather than it calling the shots in our life. So whether it be lust, whether it be greed, whether it be whatever God you want to put in the blank, that's more about you than it is about it. And that's what idolatry comes back to every single time. Now what I'm about to say to you may offend you, and I don't mean it to because I tried to pick my words very carefully with this and I thought about it a lot. What's happening in this southern kingdom, more, the more they rebel and the more they sin and the more they, they walk away from God. And remember, I told you a couple of weeks ago that when we, when we turn our back on God, it's not like we stay in this gray area. It, it, we, we're pursuing something else at the same time. So we're either walking with God, following Jesus, or we're following something else. There is no in-between. There is no vacuum. So as we're following something else, get this, the more we sin, the more ignorant we become. I don't mean that in a harsh way to call you ignorant. What I'm saying is, because I'm saying the same thing to me, that there are times that I have engaged my flesh and want to do what my flesh want to do. It caused me to become ignorant about the things of God. It caused me to believe whatever the world was saying was true. And I'll go, yeah, that, that makes sense. When in fact, it didn't make sense at all. So the further you go pursuing that other thing that's less than God, the more ignorant we become about what is actually true. I don't know if you did this this past week or over the last few weeks. I'm gonna, this is probably gonna be more confession than it is anything, but if you leave your vehicles outside overnight and you come out in the morning and your glass is all frosted over, you know, you're in a hurry. You gotta get to work, right? So I take my credit card out of my wallet and I just scrape off about a hole about that big. If you're a police officer, 
please don't give me a ticket when we go out the store. Because I think about that every time I do it. And I've done it. I did it just a few weeks ago. Actually, probably last week. But anyway, shave off a little place about that big. And I think that my defroster is going to defrost it really quick. And I don't have time to let my car warm up because I got to get going. So I'm driving down my development. All I can see is about that much. If there's cars coming from the right or left, I'm sorry, you don't exist in my mind, okay? Because all I can see is what's right in front of me. And but it takes usually by the time I get to McDonald's there on Fayetteville, I, I finally got a view about that big. But here's, here's the point I'm trying to make is the further you go into sin and the further you run after that idol, the further you run towards that thing that's not your heavenly father, your creator, here's what happens. Our view gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Paul described it this way. He says your heart gets calloused. And then all of a sudden you get to a place where you don't even know what is true and what is false. And then you get to the place where you're calling wrong right and right wrong. Social media has provided a platform for us to share with the world just how far away from God's truth we've gotten because I see it all the time. People posting things saying this is true when God's word says no, it's completely the opposite. So let me ask you this morning, if you've gotten to a point where the world has influenced you so much to a degree you don't even know where right or wrong is, maybe we should take a look at what we're following. Maybe, just maybe, we've become ignorant of God, not because we're uneducated, but because something else is taking control of our life. Something else is getting our focus. Look at verse five. God gives a powerful illustration here. Verse five, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Now, with each verse, we're getting tighter and tighter on the core issue here. He says, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Wow, what a picture. So let's just imagine, let's, let's step into the illustration. Let's just imagine in our mind's eye, we've got a desert plain. It hasn't rained there in who knows how long. The ground is cracked. The wind is blowing. And it's just dusty and dry. And in that place is this dry desert bush. It has no leaves on it. If it could bear fruit, there's no way that it would. There's no way it could survive. There is no water to be found. And this bush is all but dead. But yet there it is. And God says that the man who trusts in man, humanity who trusts in humanity, is just like that bush in a dry, parched land, desiring water, but finding none. The one who is cursed, he's talking about his people. He's talking about that conditional covenant. He's talking about those who are now running away from him. He says, look, I'm going to revoke my blessing, and I'm going to kick you out of the land. Not that you're going to lose the land forever. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But I'm going to kick you out of here and you're going to lose your blessings that I have poured into you because you are a shrub in the desert. But here's the thing about this. The one who has turned towards man, the one who is trusting in man for his strength, trusting in flesh for his strength, doesn't realize that they're trusting in flesh over God. That's the deception. He says... There's not going to be any fruit here. There's not going to be any life here. There's not going to be any leaves on that bush. There's not going to be any peace in that individual. There's not going to be any joy. There's not going to be any life. There's going to be a pursuit of water, finding none, because there is none in a parched land. Look at the next one, verse 7. He says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is planted, he is like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots in the stream and does not fear when heat comes for, it leaves, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought and it does not cease to bear fruit. So when we talk about trust in humanity versus trust in God, how do we know the difference? Well, the difference is, is the life you're living. 
If your life is dry and empty and joyless and, and you're not finding peace or rest or truth, it may be that you're not trusting in God. Now, that doesn't mean that when you put your trust in God, everything's going to be perfect, but I'll tell you this. When you put your trust in God and you follow him, it doesn't mean all your circumstances are going to be perfect, but I'll tell you this, it will be blessed, it will be joy-filled, and there will be peace if you're following him. Regardless of the circumstances, the story, the picture proves that out. This tree is planted by a stream, and its roots have grown deep. God says in this illustration that with this tree, you find leaves on it, you find life. You find that it's bearing fruit, and if a tree could be anxious, it's not going to be anxious. You know why? Because even if a drought comes, even if the winds blow, even if a storm rages, the tree is settled right where it is. You see the difference? And see, the tree is not the focus of the strength. The tree itself is not where the strength is found. The strength is found in the provision that the tree has found. You know what provision the tree has found? The stream of water. And it's from that stream that that tree pulls its nourishment. It's from that stream that it's ever to survive. In other words, it's not the tree being strong. It's in the nourishment that is provided to the tree. And so it is with you. That's why the bush is dying in the desert. It has no provision. It has no depth. It has no truth. It has no life. But the tree planted by the river has life, leaves, and fruit. Jesus said it this way in John 15. He said, I am the vine. And you are the branches. And anyone who doesn't abide in me, well, you're going to be cut loose and won't even be useful for the fire. But those who stay connected to me, guess what? You'll bear fruit. You'll have life. So if we have went after something else, guess what we've done? We have walked away from the very provision of life and joy and peace. Isn't it amazing? We run after things that we think we're going to find peace in only to find there's no peace. We run after things that the world says, this will finally bring about some life in you. If you'll just do this, if you'll just believe what we believe, if you'll just repeat what we're saying, we'll come to this utopia that's been promised for years and years and years and years. And where's our society? More confused than it's ever been. Suicide is through the roof. Hate on every Website and news site you can look at. What's, what's the main topic today? Hate. It doesn't matter what the story is. But underlying that is absolute hate and wickedness and anger. Have you not seen it at Walmart? Have you not seen it at the stoplight? Have you not seen it when you're standing in line at the, to pay your taxes? Bless your heart. Yeah, we got to do that, don't we? It seems like more now than ever, people are blowing up. I, I, can, I, can, I can document more people losing their temper than I can people saying a kind word. God says to Jeremiah, it's not the strength of the tree. It's the provision that the tree is receiving. And it's the water. No fear, fruit, no anxiety, no matter what wind or drought comes, the tree continues to thrive. Look at verse 9. It's almost as though Jeremiah kind of steps out of the conversation for just a moment. Because when we're reading God's Word, we've got to ask, who's speaking in the text? Is it God? Is it Jeremiah? Is it somebody else? So if you notice at the end of verse 8, you see the end of that quotation mark right there? That indicates to me that, of course, God has been speaking. It started all the way up there at verse 1. He's been speaking all the way through. But then when we get down to verse 9, notice that this is not within the quotation marks, and God actually answers the question in verse 10. So we have to ask the question, who's speaking in verse 9? I think it's Jeremiah. I think Jeremiah has gotten to this place, and he's seen all the corruption in the land. He's been, by this time, he's already been preaching the message that God gave him, and that message is falling on deaf ears. No one, absolutely no one is listening to Jeremiah. So Jeremiah, after God says this about the tree and the bush and, and that, that on the heart of Judah, it's been, sin is engraved, it's almost as though Jeremiah's in his prayer time, maybe on his face before God, and just for a moment, he just kind of comes to himself and he says, you know what? The heart 
is deceitful above all things. And desperately sick or desperately wicked, depending on the translation you have, who can understand it? It's almost like Jeremiah is wrestling with the very same thing we're wrestling with. When we look at a culture and what this culture is telling us, it's like Jeremiah sits back for a moment and he's going, oh my goodness, it's the heart. It's always been the heart. The heart is the problem. I'm not talking about the muscle in your chest. I'm talking about the real you, the seat of emotion in your soul, spirit, what makes you you, the ability to choose, the ability to make rational decisions. All of that is included in the heart. God's image in you. Jeremiah says there's something wrong. I also wonder if Jeremiah might in that moment look at his own heart and say, yeah, not only is their heart wicked, but man, there's some stuff going on in my heart that's not good either. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful. That is a very... Very important thing to consider. Jeremiah says that our heart has the capacity to deceive us. In other words, our heart has the capacity to get to the place where we begin to think right is wrong and wrong is right. Righteous is unrighteous, unrighteous is righteous. He says not only that, that the heart is desperately sick. The human heart has an unlimited capacity for evil. Let me say that again. So we're all on the same page here. The human heart, you, the real you on the inside, each one of us has an unlimited capacity for evil and deceit, and no human institution has ever been able to fix it. We can put people on death row. We can put on the news that this person was just injected with a lethal dose and within two minutes they were gone because of a crime that they committed 20 years ago. And yet, in our streets right here in Robinson County, there are people killing each other in cold blood without any thought. The circumstances are known, the legal system and what it offers when it's working correctly knows what the outcome can be. But the capacity of evil within our hearts, yes, every heart in this room, yes, all those precious children over in that children's, even all the way down to the nursery, the capacity of evil in that heart we have got to face head on is unlimited. Just look at human history. Just look at what human history teaches us about the depravity of humanity. There's no, about, there's no amount of education, there's no amount of power, there's no amount of PhDs you can get. There's no amount of wokeness you will ever have that will bring about this utopia that we've all been promised. This utopia where we can all link arms and sing kumbaya and everybody's fed and everybody's taken care of. Here's the problem. That when people get power and when people get money, instead of helping other people, you know what they do? They help themselves. History is full of dictators who did exactly that. They promised utopia, so well, just give me all your money, give me all the power, and I'll make sure everybody has what they need. No, people get taken advantage of, they're treated unjustly, because in the human heart is evil. And no education system, no philosophy, no education, no amount of money can fix what's inscribed on the human heart at birth. This is encouraging, isn't it? just trying to tell you that Jeremiah comes to the realization of what the real problem is. The Lord answers his question. Look at verse 10. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart and I test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So, sinful humanity born into sin, choosing to sin with unlimited capacity for evil, promise utopia to themselves, promise that we can fix it ourselves. You know why they do that? Because they rely on themselves. And the further they move away from creator God, the, the further a society moves away from a creator to whom you are accountable to, the further that society begins to promise themselves things they cannot deliver on. 
Take Hitler, for example. Hitler decided that for them to be able to reach utopia, that there were certain people who were plagues on society. Jewish people, the Polish people, people who had special needs, birth defects. Hitler convinced an entire nation of people that for them to be able to lock arms and live in utopia, something must be done. Well, what should we do? Should we throw them in prison? Should we just kick them out of the country? Should we make it hard for them to buy and sell? Yes, 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 and yes. All that was true. But then the final solution, right? The final solution is, well, we've determined because we no longer trust in a God, we no longer believe in a creator God who will hold us accountable, then the obvious thing we need to do is we just need to kill them. And so they did. Millions in gas chambers, and furnaces, horrible, horrific death of entire groups of families and people and ethnicities. If you go back and you read some of those Nazi generals and Nazi leaders who were put on trial and you read those court depositions, I've read them, here's what you'll find. You'll find them sitting on a stand being interrogated and cross-examined by legal people and you'll find that they are cold, that they really believed that Jewish people and Polish people were less than animals. Truth has consequences. What you believe has consequences in the world. And God says to Jeremiah that this southern kingdom, this kingdom that had been called out to himself, not only had they run towards sin and become ignorant and were believing whatever came down to by believing that a, that a statue could give them life, believing that a, that a false god named Baal gave them the promised land, believing that they could walk into a temple and worship God and worship Baal without any consequences. They believed all of that. And not only did they believe that, they began to put their trust in these false gods. And not only that, they were self-deceived. And the core of all of those issues is the heart. In the Pinocchio cartoon years ago, if you remember, there's a scene in Pinocchio where Jiminy Cricket is singing this song. And he looks at this boy who's a wooden puppet who wants to become a boy who now has life. And he, he looks at that, at that boy, Pinocchio, and he says, well, let your conscience be your guide. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? What happens if your conscience now believes that right is wrong and wrong is right? We have a society that now says to us that we are on the wrong side of history because we believe what the Bible says and that they have all the answers. Yet, when I look at their answers and I look at their life, what I find is a barren wasteland of a bush and a land with no water, no peace, no joy, no life, no fruit, no anything. And they're telling me they know where to find life. No, I'm sorry, I know where to find life. And it's the life-giving water of Jesus himself. And from here, I will not move. I can't. Because there's no life out there. Here we find self-deception. Look at verse 11. So God's gonna give to every man according to his deeds. So you choose to reject him. There's gonna be fruit from that. Verse 11, like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches but not by justice. In the midst of his days, they will leave him. At the end, at his end, he will be a fool. Another illustration that God uses here. There was some bird, I don't know what kind of bird it was, I tried to figure this out, some bird that was known in the southern kingdom, it's called a partridge in my translation, maybe called something else in yours. But it was some bird that the southern kingdom would have known, and this bird had a, a it was known that this bird would try to take the eggs from other hens and make them her own. And that she would sit on somebody else's eggs, believing that they were her eggs, to see those birds hatch, and those hatchlings realize that you're not my mother and, and fly off. God uses that to say the southern kingdom has so self-deceived itself, so believed in the lie 
that they have taken wealth from the very people I told them to be generous with. They have taken from the poor. They have taken from the widows. They have lived out this life of corruption. They are living outside of my commands. But here's the thing. When it's all said and done, when it all runs its course, they're going to end up with nothing, and they're going to realize they're fools. Man, that's strong, isn't it? So go ahead and play itself out. Go ahead. You keep running towards that thing. You have an opportunity to repent. That's why Jeremiah has been sent to you. But I need you to understand that whatever a man sows, that shall he reap. And you're sowing corruption. You're sowing deceit. You've deceived yourself. And there's going to be fruit from that. Let me tell you what that fruit's going to be. I'm going to take you out of the land. I'm going to put you in another land 900 miles away with a language you don't speak and a food you don't eat under a taskmaster you won't like. And you're going to be there for 70 years until I tell you you're done. You see, truth has consequences. What you believe about the world impacts your life right where you live. So finally, let's consider just a few things from this text this morning. First of all, I want you to consider this. The greater the self-reliance, the greater the ignorance. Again, I use that word cautiously. But you know it to be true. The more you rely on yourself, the more you rely on what the world is telling you, the more ignorant you become about what God's will is for your life. The more you become closed off to what God is doing in your life, the more you don't even see grace. You don't see love anymore. You don't see kindness and you don't live it out because all you're doing is looking through that little hole in the window that you can see with every passing day where you run towards that idol, that hole is getting tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. Paul talked about it in Romans 1, verses 18 and following. He says that the heart can become calloused. If you've ever burned your hand, and it's, you, know, you burned your hand, it's terrible and it takes a while for it to heal up and eventually it heals up and you notice that you don't have any feeling where that burn was, right? That's what Paul's talking about with a calloused heart, a heart that becomes so scarred with sin and disobedience, you don't even know right from wrong, you don't even know who God is anymore. The greater the self-reliance, the greater the ignorance. This is true for the individual, it's true for the nation, and it's true for a church. Any church that separates itself from the river of living water, Jesus himself, the vine, when we separate ourselves from that, you can guarantee that you're gonna turn into a dried up bush in the middle of the desert. And the crazy thing is, is you'll think you have life when in fact there's nothing but death. Second thing I want you to see, misplaced trust severs us from the blessings of God. Right here, God tells Jeremiah that these people have ignored the covenant, ignored what he's called them to be and who what he's called them to do. So therefore, he's going to revoke the blessing. He's going to kick them out of the land. Now, they'll get the return, but he's going to kick them out of the land, and they're going to suffer. And it could be that if you're not experiencing the joy and the peace, and, and what Paul talks about in Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit, Joy, love, kindness, self-control, those kinds of things. If those things are absent in your life and they're replaced with depravity and anger and, and lust and greed, maybe, maybe we better take a look at what we're putting our trust in. Remember, there is no vacuum. If we're not following Jesus, we're following something else. And when we follow something else, it impacts our life. It impacts the blessings that, that God pours out in our life. And then third, self-deception flows from the heart. As I've said before, when we read the Old Testament, we have to scratch our head and go, how in the world did the people do this? How in the world? They saw all the miracles. They, they, they saw what God could do, and yet they rejected. But if we look at the New Testament, we see Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave. And after Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave, you would imagine there's going to be a great revival. You would imagine that people everywhere are going to flock and believe in him. No, they don't. You know what happens after that? They arrest him in the garden and hang him on a cross. Don't let, don't let a cartoon cricket tell you how to live out your morality. If your conscience is seared, if your conscience has turned away from God's word, that your conscience has turned away from following Jesus. If, you, if your conscience is being filled with the entertainment of the world rather than feasting on his word and letting it change you from the inside out, you better not trust that conscience because that conscience will tell you 
all kinds of things in self-deception. The heart is desperately wicked. It is sick. So what do we do? If sin is written on the heart, what, how do we do all that? Well, you can't fix it. And society can't fix it. We're going to get to this in the weeks ahead about Jeremiah says that God will give you a new heart. And written on that heart is God's word. How do you get that? Because the world can't give it to you. Well, it's available through his grace. God should give you what you deserve, but when he doesn't, you know what that's called? That's called grace. And today, he's extended grace one more time. And he's saying to you, believer in Christ, if you're following something else, it's time to repent. It's time to get that right. It's time to call it what it is, put it aside, tell the Lord you're sorry, get it out of your life, and start walking with him. Lost person, you've never put your faith in Jesus Today's that day. Today, that grace is being extended to you one more time to say you can have a brand new heart. And God has already rewritten your story. And he has a path for you to walk that looks just like that tree planted by that river. Fruit, life, peace, joy, and purpose. Father in heaven, thank you for the clarity and the beauty of your word. And that's exactly what you've promised. And through Jesus, it was accomplished that we can have a brand new heart. That this old heart that was born in, into sin and deception, well, we die. It dies. But then we're resurrected to new life in Christ. A new heart, a new purpose, a new life. And with that new life and new purpose, your blessings as your adopted sons and daughters, the blessings of walking with you for an entire life, having roots that grow deep, being nourished. And when the winds blow, when the thunder claps, when the lightning strikes, we stand firm. I believe there's people here today and those watching online that want that kind of life that are tired of chasing after lesser things, only to find out that it's nothing more than another desert and another, well, another parched land. They're tired of trying to fit something into that hole in their life that the world says will work but never does. I believe there's some people here today that's tired of running after lesser things. And Lord, in your grace and mercy, yet again, you say to this body here and those watching online, come to me, all that are burdened and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, and I'll give you water, and I'll give you purpose, and I'll give you life, I'll give you peace, I'll give you unconditional love, and I'll make you new again. Only you can do that. Nothing else comes close. We love you, Lord. And in this moment of time, as we worship together, may folks respond to that good grace that you've offered this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and worship together. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.